Father, we thank you for these songs that remind us of your majesty, uh, that remind us how we should approach you when we come into your presence. Lord, we are to come boldly. Your grace and your mercy invites us to come boldly, but yet at the same time we should come falling on our knees before you, just acknowledging who you are as our great God. And as we come to your word, help us, Lord, to come uh, with humility, ready and eager to hear from you. Lord, we often come into this place with so many things on our hearts and minds, burdening us, weighing us down. Lord, help us to remember that you, you command us to cast our cares upon you because you care for us. And Lord, help us to do that now with any cares that we have, to give them to you, to trust you enough to take care of them so that we can still our hearts and our minds and, and focus on what your word has to say to us this morning. So please bless our time as we hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen. Please open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. We're looking at the second half of that chapter this morning. Lord willing, we will finish this first letter to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 16, and we're looking at verses 13 to 24. And I'm not going to read it for us. We'll just work through it as we go along. But as you're turning there, just a thought to get us started. Uh, last night, my wife and I had started watching The Christmas Carol with George C. Scott playing Ebenezer Scrooge. He plays the perfect Scrooge, a crotchety old man whose favorite expression is bah humbug. And he's the type of guy, as you know, who would rather have one of his fingers cut off than to have you extract one penny from his pockets. And in this movie, uh, in the opening scenes, he has a conversation with his employee, Bob Cratchit. And the conversation is revolving around him having the day off for Christmas the next day. And here's how that conversation goes. Scrooge says, You'll want all day tomorrow, I suppose. Crotch, or Cratchit says, if it's quite convenient, sir. Scrooge replies, it is not convenient, and it is not fair. If I were to hold back half a crown from your pay for it, you would think yourself ill-used, I'll be bound. But you don't think me ill-used when I pay a day's wages for no work. Cratchit said, Christmas comes but once a year, sir. Then Scrooge replies, poor excuse for picking a man's pocket every 25th of December. Eh, I suppose you must have it. You get the idea that Cratchit didn't get many days off. When we listen to that story and watch those movies, we can tend to look down on Scrooge, but it's worth asking ourselves if we're not more like him than we like to admit. Maybe we don't hang on to literally every penny for dear life, like Scrooge does, but we can hang on to every minute, unwilling to give of our time to someone else, or we can hang on to every calorie, unwilling to spend any energy in service to someone else, or we can hang on to our emotions, unwilling to burden our hearts with the problems of others. How unlike Jesus, that hoarding of our resources is. During this 
Christmas season, we are reminded of the truth that Paul declares in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9, where he says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. And that's the verse I've wanted us to be keeping in the back of our minds as we've been going through this 16th chapter. Last week, we looked at the first 12 verses, and there we saw several snapshots of very practical ways in which believers in the early church had the opportunity to give of themselves, to give of their resources, their money, their time, their emotions, their energy, to serve one another, to love one another. And this week, in the second half of this chapter, we're going to see some more snapshots of this practical love. And Paul here is touching on several different things as he closes out this letter. And so as we work through it, it's going to feel a little bit like a hodgepodge of things, but I think that you'll see that underneath all of it, there's this common thread of love, how we as believers are to deny ourselves and give of ourselves to one another. Paul begins in verses 13 to 14 by rattling off a series of commands to these believers. Look at verse 13. Paul says, Be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Paul here commands these believers to do some things that it's apparent from this letter that they have been neglecting to do. He commands them, first of all, to be on the alert or be watchful. And coming on the heels of chapter 15, where Paul spoke of the return of Christ and the coming resurrection of all believers, this may be a call by Paul to the Corinthians to wake up and live in the light of the return of Jesus Christ. Jesus spoke about this alertness himself during his ministry on earth. For example, back in Mark's Gospel, chapter 13, he uses this very same language in exhorting his disciples. He calls on them to be on the alert. Mark chapter 13, verse 33, Jesus says, in, re- in relation to his return, he says, Take heed, keep on the alert, for you do not know when the appointed time will come. It is like a man away on a journey who, upon leaving his house and putting his slaves in charge, assigning to each one his task, also commanded the doorkeeper to stay on the alert. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, in case he should come suddenly and find you asleep. What I say to you, I say to all, be on the alert. One way that you can tell whether or not you are on the alert is by how you are living. If you are living in such a way that you would be ashamed to have Christ come back and call you to give an account for the life that you're living, that's an indication that you're not keeping on the alert. And the Corinthians, as we've seen, have been engaged in much shameful behavior, which shows that they are not on the alert. They are asleep at the wheel. 
When Paul says, be on the alert or be watchful, he could also be calling on them to be on their guard against Satan and the error that Satan is always trying to inject into the church. And this also fits into the context of chapter 15, because what was Paul responding to when he wrote the 15th chapter, which is all about the resurrection? What was the occasion for him to write that chapter? Well, verse 12 said that there were some in their midst who were teaching, claiming that there is no resurrection from the dead. False teaching had crept into the church, which is why Paul wrote chapter 15. And the fact that the Corinthians were allowing this teaching to take place in the church shows that they were not being alert on that front either. So Paul exhorts them, be on the alert. Wake up. Stand watch. Don't fall asleep at the wheel. The second command he gives them in verse 13 is, stand firm in the faith. Stand firm in the faith. That follows along with what we've just been talking about from chapter 15. This false teaching that there's no resurrection from the dead was threatening to loosen their hold on the gospel. And Paul stated very plainly what that gospel is, that Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was raised from the dead according to the scriptures. And Paul said that if there's no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. So by allowing that teaching to persist, they were not standing firm on the faith. They were allowing false doctrine to weaken that foundation that they were standing on. At the end of chapter 15, in verse 58, Paul commanded them, My beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable. And he repeats the essence of that command here in chapter 16, verse 13, when he says, Stand firm in the faith. And that's something that you and I need to do as well. We must be ever watchful against false teaching that subtly worms its way into our hearts and minds and corrupts our faith from the inside out. How do we keep on the alert against that? How do we stand firm pressing against that tendency? Well, we do it by being in the, the Word of God every day, washing our minds in the Word of God. We do it by running to the Lord in prayer every day because who's the one who keeps us in our faith? It's not us in our strength. It's the Lord. So we go to him in prayer. And we should always be gathering together with the body of Christ because we are each having that preservative, salt-like influence upon one another, preserving each other from falsehood, reminding each other of the truth. That is how we stand firm in the faith. Then Paul says, Act like men, be strong. Act like men, be strong. That Greek word, that verb for act like men, it's the word that in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which was the Bible of the early church, the Old Testament scriptures, in that translation of the Old Testament, the Greek verb act like men, that was the word used to translate scriptures like Joshua 1.9. Where, Paul, or where God commands Joshua to be strong and courageous. Act like men. That translated that word to be courageous. And with Paul 
tacking on here the command to be strong, it's pretty clear that those kinds of verses are rolling through his mind when he tells these Corinthians to act like men and be strong. He's thinking about texts like Joshua 1.9 where God commands Joshua to be strong and courageous. And the reason why God commanded Joshua to be that way was because Joshua would face many temptations to veer from the path that God had set before him to bring Israel into the promised land. And the Corinthians, likewise, are going to face many temptations to veer off from the gospel. For example, when we went through chapters 8 through 10, does anybody remember pop quiz Does anybody remember what the main issue there was in chapters 8 through 10? No cheating. Any off the top of your head, anybody remember? It was them dining in idol temples, remember? And we talked about in that society the, the pressure on them to keep doing that. If, if a person was throwing a birthday party or a wedding or someone was holding a funeral or even a business um, networking type meetings that was often taking place on the precincts of the temples of idols. And so there was this tremendous social pressure on the Corinthians to go to those things. And that's why it was going to take acting like a man and being strong to stand fast on the gospel and not cave in to those pressures. It was going to take strength and courage to not slip back into paganism. And you and I face similar pressures today. The world around us, everything about it is calling us to leave the cross, to leave Jesus Christ And it's going to take courage and strength to not give in to those temptations. And it's not courage or strength in yourself. It's courage or strength in the Lord, knowing that he is enough for me. I don't need what the world is offering me. I have enough in Christ. And he's going to never forsake me. He's going to enable me to stand strong. That's how we act like men and be strong. Lastly, in verse 14, Paul says, Let all that you do be done in love. Let all that you do be done in love. And this is the remedy to the vast majority of the Corinthians' problems, isn't it? We've seen that the church in Corinth was torn by division. And we've seen that in how they were competing with one another by rallying behind their favorite teachers We saw this division in how they were failing to lovingly confront a man who was caught in sexual sin in chapter 5. We've seen this division in how they were taking one another to court, suing one another. They were also willing to become stumbling blocks to weaker brothers and sisters by dining in idol temples. Not only that, but they were overlooking one another in the celebration of the Lord's Supper. And we saw how they were improperly practicing their spiritual gifts. All of that could have been prevented if they had simply been concerned rather than about their own status in the church. 
if they had simply been concerned for the good of others. All of these problems would have gone away. And if that was the case, we wouldn't have been a year and a half in the book of 1 Corinthians. It would have been a much shorter letter if only they had sought to love one another in everything that they were doing. And as a church, this is something that you and I need to remember. The motive behind everything we do in the church and outside of the church ought to be love for one another. Not concern about self and self-promotion, but concern for the welfare of the other. That should be the driver behind everything we do. And if that is the driver behind everything we do, then a whole host of problems that we saw with the Church of Corinth will not be the problems in this church if we love one another. That brings us to verses 15 to 18, where Paul gives a great example of a number of people who were obeying verse 14. They were loving in everything that they were doing. And that's where we see Paul exhort these believers to be subject to good examples. Be subject to good examples. Look at verse 15. Paul says, Now I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanas, that they were the first fruits of Achaia. That means that they were among the first believers in Achaia to come to faith under Paul's ministry, and that they have devoted themselves for ministry to the saints that you also be in subjection to such men and to everyone who helps in the work and labors. I rejoice over the coming of Stephanas and Fortunatus and Achaicus because they have supplied what was lacking on your part, for they have refreshed my spirit and yours. Therefore acknowledge such men. Paul here exhorts the Corinthians to subject themselves to men like this, men whom he describes in these few verses. In this case, the people that Paul wants them to subject themselves to are Stephanas and his household, along with Fortunatus and Achaicus. Now, the people that Paul presents in this passage, he doesn't talk about them as elders. That may be what they are, but that's not how Paul presents them. He simply presents them as exemplary servants in the church. Now, that can be a little confusing because when we think of being subject to someone, usually we only think of it in terms of being subject to someone who is an authority over me. But that's not how Paul is presenting the Corinthians being subject to someone as in this passage. When you go from relationship to relationship, depending on what your position in that relationship is, being subject may or may not involve being subject to an authority. As we see in Ephesians 5.21, Paul says, be subject to one another. So we need to think through what is the relationship between the Corinthians and Stephanos and the others in order to determine what does this being subject to them look like so that we as well can, can follow that example. What's the relationship like? What's the nature of this relationship between the Corinthians and Stephanos and the others? Well, Paul indicates that Stephanos and the others are those who, verse 15, the end of verse 15, they are those who have devoted themselves 
for ministry to the saints. I like how the King James Bible translates it. It says, they have addicted themselves to the ministry of the saints. It immediately brings a, a picture to your mind. They have addicted themselves to the ministry of the saints. Now, if you use the King James Bible, at times you're going to have to need to make sure that a word used in it means the same thing today as it did 300 years ago. Oftentimes it doesn't mean the same because words, the meaning of words shifts over time and how you use it. So to know for sure if a word in the King James means what you think it means, and we've put in a plug for this dictionary before, but it's helpful to have Noah Webster's 1828 English Dictionary on hand because that dictionary is old enough that what the King James means by a word it uses is going to be closer to how that dictionary defines it than if I pick up a dictionary that was published in this day and age. If I rely on a modern dictionary, I'm probably not going to figure out what the King James meant by the word it used. But I looked up this word addicted in the Webster's 1828 dictionary. And this is what Webster had to say. And it's helpful because he often refers to the King James in his dictionary. So it's very helpful to know what is being said. But defining that word addicted, he said, quote, to apply oneself habitually, to devote time and attention by customary or constant practice, sometimes in a good sense. And then he quotes 1 Corinthians 16, 15. They have addicted themselves to the ministry of the saints. He goes on in defining this word to say that more usually this word is used in a bad sense, to follow customarily or devote by habitually practicing that which is ill, as a man is addicted to intemperance. Obviously, the King James was using the word in a good sense. They have addicted themselves to the ministry of the saints. And I like the way the King James translates that because it instantly suggests a helpful metaphor to our minds. Just as you're not going to find a heroin addict very far away from a needle, you are not going to find Stephanos and Fortunatus and Achaicus very far from serving the saints. They had set themselves apart to serve the body of Christ. They were devoted wholeheartedly to that, addicted to it, if you will. That's the kind of people they were. And the Corinthians were the beneficiaries of that constant service. Just to think more about this relationship that was occurring between these individuals, verse 17, we find Paul rejoicing over their coming, the coming of Stephanas and Fortunatus and Achaicus. He's rejoicing because they have supplied what was lacking in Paul's life. Now this verse sounds like a rebuke when he says, they have supplied what was lacking on your part. It can sound like Paul is saying, you know, these guys succeeded where you sorry people failed. But that's not what Paul is saying. When Paul says, they have supplied what was lacking on your part, the expression that he's using is similar to an expression that he uses in addressing the Philippians. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. And we know that Paul was 
very pleased with the Philippians and the life of faith that they were living. He raved about the Philippians. Philippians chapter 2, verse 30, talking about one of the Philippians, Epaphroditus, who had come from the church in Philippi to see Paul. Verse 30, Paul says, Because he, Epaphroditus, came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was deficient or what was lacking in your service to me. That's not a slam against the Philippians. It's just because, due to distance, they were not able to be there with Paul supplying his needs. And so when Epaphroditus came, he filled up that void in the life of Paul. And it's the same thing happening here in the letter to the Corinthians. When Paul says that Stephanos and the others have supplied what was lacking on your part, he's simply expressing that as difficult a people as the Corinthians were, Paul still felt a hole in his life when he wasn't with them. There was a void there. He missed them. And when Stephanos and Fortunatus and Achaicus came, it was like a homecoming to Paul. They filled up that void in his heart. And there are certain people like that where their hearts are so big that when they come to visit, it's like they brought the whole church with them. It just fills you up, fills up that hole, that void left by distance, the absence that distance has created between me and others. And according to verse 18, people like this are a refreshment and a source of rest to the people of God they come into contact with. Paul says, they have refreshed my spirit and yours. They have given rest to my spirit and yours. And in that way, Stephanos and the others were imitators of Christ. Because what does Christ promise us in Matthew eleven twenty eight? Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's the kind of believers that these men were. So that's the relationship between the Corinthians and these men. These men are exemplary servants of the church, and the Corinthians are the beneficiaries of that service. So when Paul says, I urge you, be subject to such people as that, what does it look like to be subject to such people? They may not be in a position of authority over us, but we're still to be subject to them. What does that look like? Well, the end of verse 18 says, Therefore acknowledge such men. Acknowledge such men. We are to honor such people, not in a flattering way, but with a sincere gratitude for what God is doing through them to his own praise and glory and for the good of his people. So being subject to people like that involves honoring them but it also likely involves imitating them. It's clear that when Paul writes about these people, he's holding them up to the Corinthians as an example. So implied in this is being subject to people like that is following their example, following their lead, because they are showing these Corinthians and us what it looks like to obey verse 14, let all that you do be done in love. And God, by his grace, puts people like that in each congregation. And we should pay attention to them 
and we should acknowledge them, and we should follow their example. That brings us to the greetings that we find in verses 19 to 20. This is another example of a practical way in which we can love one another. Verse 19, Paul says, The churches of Asia greet you. Aquila and Prisca greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that is in their house. All the brethren greet you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Paul begins closing out this letter by sharing greetings being sent from other believers to the Corinthians. And he mentions the churches of Asia. Remember, this is Paul's third missionary journey, and at this stage in his journey, he's living in Ephesus. And he's writing from Ephesus to the Corinthians. And the church in Ephesus was in that province of Asia. When Paul says Asia, he's not talking about China and India. He's talking about the Roman province, which was a much smaller region south of the Black Sea, north of the Mediterranean Sea. This is where the seven churches that the Apostle John wrote to in the book of Revelation were located. Paul is saying, these churches in this area send their greetings to you. He also mentions a famous couple in Scripture, Aquila and Prisca, Prisca being short for Priscilla. They were a married couple who had lived in Corinth when Paul first arrived there during his second missionary journey. In Acts chapter 18, we're told that Paul lived with this man and woman for a time because they shared the same trade that he had. He was a tent maker. They were tent makers. So he stayed with them and they worked together. And their home became Paul's home. And it became a home base for him to go out and preach the gospel. So you could say that Aquila and Priscilla were founding members of the church at Corinth. They were there from the very beginning. And when Paul left Corinth in that second missionary journey, he took this couple with him. They were very useful to him. And he left them in Ephesus. And as he has come back to Ephesus on his third journey, this couple is still there faithfully serving, hosting again a church in their home. That's the kind of people Aquila and Priscilla are. And you can tell that their hearts are still with the Corinthians because they don't just send their greetings. Paul says they greet you heartily in the Lord. Heartily in the Lord. That's what God does between believers. He knits their hearts together. And he knits their hearts together in such a way that distance and time does not degrade that bond. And that's why reunions with fellow believers are the best kinds of reunions, the most joyful kinds of reunions, because of that bond that the Lord has wrought in your hearts. Paul also mentions in verse 20, all the brethren greet you. We don't know exactly who that is, but probably all the believers with him at the time he's writing, they all greet the Corinthians. There's a great unity among the churches. It's not one church for themselves, which is how the Corinthians often acted. They're not alone in their, their faith. And then Paul ends that verse by saying, verse 20, greet one another with a holy kiss. Greet one another with a holy kiss. 
A customary way that people greeted one another in Bible times was with a, sign, with, a, with a kiss as a sign of friendship and a sign of familial kinship. It was the way that people in the early church greeted one another. A holy kiss was a symbol of the bond that all believers have in Jesus Christ. When you repented of your sins and you trusted in the Lord, he adopted you into a big, big family with more brothers and sisters than you could ever count. And this holy kiss was a sign, a recognition of that familial bond that the Lord brought you into when you trusted in him. And Paul exhorts these believers to greet one another in this way. Why would he, greet, why would he command these believers in particular to greet one another in this way? Well, judging from the division that's running rife through their congregation, it seems that they have forgotten that they are brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. And that's something that we can forget very easily ourselves. We can forget that we have the same Heavenly Father. We have the same Savior brother, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have the same Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us. And when we forget that, we can more easily allow petty disagreements to come between us. And Paul didn't want these Corinthians to forget the bond that they had, and so he told them to greet one another as family in Christ. Give a holy kiss to one another. And that's how we should greet one another. Now, by that I don't mean that we should start the practice of kissing one another. If you run up to me and give me a kiss, I'm probably not going to take it the way you intend me to take it. That's not what I mean. When, I'm saying, when I say we should greet one another this way, I'm saying we should greet one another like the adopted family we are in Jesus Christ. We should greet one another warmly, being genuinely happy to see one another. When a brother or sister says hi to you, don't just say, hey, no, smile and let them know you're happy to see them like a long-lost brother or sister. That's how we should greet one another, with that kind of warmth and that kind of acknowledgement of our bond that we have in Jesus Christ, a bond that is thicker than blood because it's a bond created by Christ's blood. And then Paul closes this letter in verses 22, or 21 to 24. He gives his own greeting in verse 21. He says, the, the greeting is in my own hand, Paul. This is his closing word to these believers. And then he follows that greeting with an incredibly strong warning that almost comes out of nowhere. Verse 22, if anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed, Maranatha. That verse tells us that if you do not love Jesus Christ, then you are under a curse. That is, you remain under the wrath of God and you are still headed for the lake of fire. And that warning seems to come out of nowhere. Paul's saying, such and such greets you, such and such greets you, and I send my greetings. Oh, by the way, if you do not love the Lord, you're under a curse. It seems to come out of nowhere, but really, that is what this whole letter has been leading up to. 
If love is the answer to all of the Corinthians' problems, as we saw in verse 14 was the case, then lack of love has been the cause of all their problems. A lack of love for one another. A lack of concern for the good of one another. And a lack of love for one another is due to a lack of love for Jesus Christ. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 4. First John chapter 4, verse 7. John teaches this. He says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Verse 19 He says, we love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. If I do not love my brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, then I do not love Jesus Christ. Whatever I may say, I may say, oh, I love the Lord so much, but if I'm not loving those who are standing right in front of me, then whatever love I'm talking about is not the kind of love that God demands from his people. And if I do not love Jesus Christ, it is because I do not know Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, and I'm still dead in my sins. Jesus Christ is the most lovely being in the entire universe. If you know him, it is impossible not to love him. Now, all believers are guilty of not loving the Lord as much as they should. None of us loves him perfectly as we ought. But there is no such thing as a believer who has no love for Jesus Christ. Is it possible? Think about this with me. Is it possible for you to believe in Jesus Christ and yet have no love for him? He who created you and took on flesh in order to live the righteous life that you were incapable of living, in order to clothe you with a garment of righteousness that he wove together with his own righteous life? Is it possible for you to believe in Jesus Christ and yet at the same time have no love for him who went to the cross where he bore the punishment for your crimes against God? Is that possible? Is it possible for you to believe in Jesus Christ and yet have no love for him who rose from the dead in order to raise you to new life? Is it possible for you to believe in Jesus Christ, to know Jesus Christ, and yet have no love for him who has forgiven you of all your sins and who intercedes on your behalf as your merciful and faithful high priest before the throne of Almighty God day and night? Is it possible for you to believe in Jesus Christ, to know Jesus Christ, and yet have no love for him who has become your everything, 
your joy, your peace, your life, your resurrection, your righteousness, your wisdom, your redemption, your sanctification. Is that possible? No. Such a thing is not possible. You cannot know Christ and at the same time not love Christ. If you do not love Jesus Christ, it is because you do not believe in him. You have not yet come to know him, and you are accursed, Paul says. And if that is you this morning, you need to know the Lord is coming to call everyone to an account. That's what Maranatha means, O Lord, come. O Lord, come. And when he comes, he will separate those who love him from those who do not love him. Those who love him will live with him forever and ever. And those who do not love him will be cast into the lake of fire where they will feel his wrath forever and ever. If you do not love Jesus Christ, then you are guilty of not loving the most lovable person in the entire universe. And you are in need of mercy and grace. And that's why Paul prays what he prays in verse 23. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Jesus came to bring grace to those who do not love him. You and I were born haters of God. And you need to know if that is still you, there is grace for you in Jesus Christ. If only you will believe in him. If only you will recognize him as the most desirable person in all the universe. And if you ask him to be merciful to you, you who don't love him, you who are still wandering far away from him, he will show you mercy because he loves to be merciful to those who ask him for it. And if you believe in Jesus Christ, he will save you and he will pour his love into you and he will enable you to start loving him and to start loving others. Now, why did Paul give these Corinthians such a hard word in verse 22? And why has he told them such hard things throughout this entire letter? 1 Corinthians is full of hard words for these believers. Well, it's because of verse 24, where Paul says, My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Paul loves them. And Paul has told them these hard things because he loves them and he wants what is best for them. I don't really love someone if I see they're going astray and I'm unwilling to tell them the hard thing so that they will get back on track. That's not love. That's selfishness. Paul is willing to stick his neck out and tell these believers the hard thing so that they may experience the greatest joy in Christ. In conclusion, if you profess to be a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, but you are struggling to answer the question, do I love the Lord? Because that, verse 22, poses that question to us, doesn't it? I have to look at myself in the mirror and ask myself, do I love the Lord? Do I really believe in Jesus? Well, if that's you, you're not the first one to struggle with such a question. John Newton, the man who wrote the most famous hymn that we sing, Amazing Grace, he also wrote a hymn called, Tis a Point I Long to Know. 
And in this hymn, he asks that exact same question of himself, do I love the Lord? And this is what he prays in that song, and I would encourage you to pray this prayer if, if you are asking yourself that and are unsure. He says, "'Tis a point I long to know. Oft it causes anxious thought. Do I love the Lord or no? Am I his or am I not? If I love, why am I thus? Why this dull and lifeless frame? Hardly sure can they be worse who have never heard his name. Could my heart so hard remain? Prayer a task and burden prove? Every trifle give me pain if I knew a Savior's love? When I turn my eyes within, all is dark and vain and wild, filled with unbelief and sin. Can I deem myself a child? If I pray or hear or read, sin is mixed with all I do. You that love the Lord indeed, tell me, is it thus with you? Yet I mourn my stubborn will, find my sin a grief and thrall. Should I grieve for what I feel if I did not love it all? Could I joy his saints to meet, choose the ways I once abhorred, find at times the promise sweet if I did not love the Lord? Lord, decide the doubtful case. Thou who are thy people's son, shine upon thy work of grace, if it be indeed begun. Let me love thee more and more, if I love it all, I pray. If I have not loved before, help me to begin today. Let's pray. Father, it's such a strong word of conviction at the end of that letter that is full of such words. Lord, help us to examine ourselves and to ask, do I love Jesus Christ? And not, not a wishy-washy, sentimental love, but a love that drives me to action, to obey my Lord Jesus Christ. A love that counts him worthy to suffer the loss of all things, if only I may have him. That's the kind of love Paul is talking about. Do, do I have that love for the Lord? Father, help us to... to view ourselves rightly through the lens of your word. Help us not to try to figure out the answer to that question on our own. Help us to run to you, as John Newton did. Lord, if, if we have any love at all for Jesus Christ, it is only because you have done a miracle in our hearts to give us that love. We would not have any love at all for him if it were not you, for you, causing us to be born again and giving us new life. Help us to keep that in mind. Help us to know the answer to that question for ourselves. And if anyone is here and comes to the conclusion that, no, they don't love Jesus, help them to run to Jesus, and they will find in him a Savior whose arms are open wide to love him and, and lay down his life for him and draw him into fellowship with himself. Help them to run to Christ, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.